Two and a Half Admins, episode 137. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you want to plug ZFS optimization success stories again? Yes. I know a bunch of you didn't read it last time, and you should definitely go read it. There's lots of good stories in there. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. I feel really bad laughing at this, but it's really hard not to. Journalist plugs in unknown USB drive mailed to him. It exploded in his face. It's a little easier to laugh at when you realize how little explosive you can actually pack into something the size of a thumb drive with a cheap plastic case on it. That's what prevented this from being a much more severe danger to life and limb. Yeah, but he still got burns to his face and hands and stuff. So I do feel bad. You know, this, this is like terrorism, basically. So we shouldn't laugh at it. But just don't plug unknown USB sticks in. Come on. How close is a USB port to your face? Even a laptop, unless you're like leaning over to plug it in and it immediately popped, I suppose your face might be there, but... Yeah, if you don't want to try it once, try it the other way, and then it was the first time and you actually want to look to see which way it goes in, maybe. So basically, this just boils down to uh, plug device into computer, 5 volt hot is enough to ignite at least (laughs) some of the... uh, of the explosive material in the device. Uh, in this case, it was uh, T4, better known as RDX explosive, which is usually used as a primer, but it can also just be used to blow stuff up, which is what was done here. The attacker managed to fit about a gram of it into a USB drive, about half of which ignited, and that was enough to produce mild face and hand injuries on one of five journalists who plugged the things in. It's hard to decide how much you want to say about this because there are far worse things that one could do with a USB drive and there are far nastier ways to try to deliver explosive to somebody you don't like. And I don't really want to give people lots of fun ideas along those lines. Yeah. But one of the things that does get me a little bit annoyed when people who have never worked with explosives talk about explosives is they always have this idea that you can just take any random thing in normal day-to-day life and say, oh, well, now that's an explosive and it will blow up and, you know, destroy like a building or whatever. And, you know, it's something the size of a thumb drive. I think it might be helpful to get an idea of scale. So this thumb drive probably could not have had any more RDX in it than it did, which was about one gram. And by comparison, a United States standard issue M79 hand grenade has about 180 grams of explosive in it of roughly the same strength. The other big difference is that a USB thumb drive to be believable is going to need to be in a pretty flimsy little plastic shell. And once you start getting into the weeds with describing how explosives work and how effective they are and how much energy you get out of it, uh, the uh, I believe it's called the velocity of detonation is one of your key metrics. And you get the velocity of detonation not only out of how much explosive you ignite, but how densely compressed it is. And you can get a lot more compression out of a steel hand grenade chassis than you can get out of a thumb drive. This is absolutely an issue, but I wouldn't want people thinking it's some kind of, you know, MacGyver A-team nonsense where somebody plugs in a flash drive and, you know, their, their house goes up in a fireball or what have you. Yeah. My biggest worry of that kind of thing is if you could, even without explosives, just do enough problems to the laptop to, to set the lithium battery started. And then you have all kinds of problems. Yeah, that's that's a good point. A lot of people don't realize just how explosive a charged lithium battery really is. If you're unfamiliar with that idea that you could think of a lithium battery as explosive, 
head on down to your local friendly YouTube. Try not to let the recommendation algorithm turn you into a Nazi and search for stab phone <laughs> burn or something like that. There are a few uh, videos out there of somebody who literally just like stabs at the back of a cell phone sitting on a sidewalk with a steak knife. And it takes them several tries to get into it. But once they actually pierce the battery pack in the phone, it's pretty eye-opening how much energy gets liberated, how quickly. And then you think about every day you put one of those in your pocket right next to your most precious bits. I remember iFixit did a video, I think, and a piece as well accompanying it about how much difference it makes depending on how charged the battery is. I mean, it sort of just makes logical sense. The more energy that's in it, the more it's going to be flammable and explosive. But if you run down the charge of a battery first before attempting repairs, it's way less flammable and way less dangerous if you do any damage to it. It's literally the difference between setting a car on fire with a full tank of gas and with an empty tank of gas. Yeah, I guess. Yes, although speaking of cars, that's where a lot of the horror stories from lithium come. It's like, yeah, there was an electric car. It was on fire. We put the fire out. But a couple hours later, the fire just spontaneously started again because lithium. To be fair, th that was a problem with electric vehicles uh, even before lithium ion in the mm -hmm. in the pioneering days of BEVs when people were, you know, home building lead acid battery pack powered vehicles. You still came across quite a few stories of, you know, somebody who they left the garage and went home and came back the next morning and the whole thing was, you know, burned to the ground because one of their vehicles had they say spontaneously combusted, but that's not really probably the best description. It boils down to if you have something that creates a short circuit across that much energy in a battery, yeah, you're going to have a fire. So back to the original story then. Clearly exploding thumb drives make for great headlines. But this surely tells us that for every exploding one, there must be hundreds of thousands or millions of thumb drives that are just randomly plugged in to computers that people have no idea where they came from, what's on them. Well, that's usually the point of plugging it in is find out what's on it, right? <laughs> but like, have people not had training about this in companies? This is not a standard thing that you learn or, uh, you know, that you teach your employees don't do this, especially journalists like in this case. Yes, but if you're a journalist, a lot of your job will involve you need to get access to this data that somebody gave to you. And a thumb drive is one of the more common ways to deliver said data. Frankly, I'm a lot more worried about things like bad USB than I am out of this. Well, let's let's pack a little RDX in it and, you know, see what happens. I really loathe the thought of the firmware level exploits that you can get nailed with if you plug the wrong USB device into your machine, which technically doesn't need to be a thumb drive either. I mean, you could absolutely bad USB a mouse. Any USB device could be a Trojan that will own your machine at an insanely low level that is very difficult to detect, much less correct. As far as, you know, the issue with explosives in particular, there are some pretty easy mitigations to this one. The first one that, that popped ahead for me, if, if you gave me absolutely no preparation, you're like, okay, this is life or death. Here's a thumb drive. You have to find out what's on it in the next 10 or 15 minutes or, or somebody will die. And I had concerns that this could be an explosive one. Well, again, I know you can only pack about a gram of explosive into it. And it's a flimsy plastic shell. So the amount of damage it can do is very limited. So the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take one of the cheap little wall warts that you can plug a phone into via USB cable, plug a long USB cable into that and 
plug the thumb drive in on the end of the cable. And I actually said that in the wrong order. You plug the thumb drive into the cable, and then you plug the cable into the wall wart so that when you do that, any, any, uh, an explosion is really not even the right word here. You know, any incendiary effect that you might get is at least six feet away from you at the other end of the cable. If you want to get a little bit fancier, you know, you could have it under like a bowl or something. In the sink. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the cable because in this particular case, one of the thumb drives that was uh, filled with explosives was plugged in using an extension cable. And because of that, there wasn't sufficient voltage or current or perhaps both And so it didn't explode. It was only the ones that were directly plugged in that could draw enough power to set the charge off. Nah, there's no such limitation to the amount of power you can deliver on the end of an extension cable because you can charge your phone on the end of a three meter cable just fine and it will pull down insane amounts of power. You get enough power to jumpstart a car through one of those cables. In terms of voltage, which is all you need, you don't need a ton of current. You need high voltage, and the cable is not going to get in the way of that. And you're also going to be able to pull far more current than you would need to ignite something like this. Now, that's not to say that the cable might not have been part of the issue here, but ultimately, it really comes down to these were amateur-made, basically one-off, half-assed devices. Even the one that actually managed to injure somebody, only about half of the actual incendiary burned at all which gives you some idea of the quality of these things. Yeah, the difference for the ones that didn't go off could actually have been a better USB controller that limited itself and wouldn't put the shorted amount of amperage down the cable. I also would not rule out that they were just slightly more shoddily built than the one that did mildly injure somebody. Because again... This was just some rando packing a gram of RDX into a thumb drive and trying to hook it up such that the five volt rail would ignite it if plugged in. But like, you can't test it. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Reddit had a recent outage, and they've written quite a detailed report about what happened and what they've learned from it. They have, and uh, before we talk about it in more detail, I'd like to give it a very quick bullet point style sum up. Kubernetes is hard. It's been a very long time since we actually practiced our backup and restore. And uh, did we mention Kubernetes is hard? Oh, also, we haven't tried cold restarting the service in years. That's definitely the one we see the most with any of these more complicated, especially stuff that involves a lot of microservices or Kubernetes, is that the cold start seems to be the thing that never gets tested. And it turns out when you have really complicated dependency trees between, you know, this needs to be running before that can start and this needs to be, and especially you get a circle in there where suddenly these two services both need to be up before this other one can come up, but both of them depend on the other one being up. It can really lead to a situation where it's like, 
how do we trick all these things into starting anyway or bootstrapping themselves properly? While the meme is always, you know, have you tried turning it off and on again? It's really, have you tried turning it off and seeing if it's possible to actually get it to turn back on? Because, you know, that's the other thing we talk about with hardware, kind of unrelated to this story, but the most likely time for your server's hardware to fail is when you turn it off and on again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was running fine, but you stopped it, and now it doesn't want to start turning again. It's literally electrically harder on hardware to be powered off and powered back on than just to run over the same interval of time because you've got to deal with things like startup current. You know, you you will see a lot more fluctuations in voltage and current levels. You will see higher current levels as all the various DC motors are spun up to speed, whether we're talking about the fans or whether we're talking about hard drives. And there's a lot of things there that are going to have startup current, which is why when you look at server builds, you know, there's usually an option in the BIOS to stagger when they power up the drives so that instead of, you know, in a box with 24 hard drives, all 24 drives all firing up exactly at once and 24 times the starting current, which, you know, the starting current can easily be 10 times the current it takes to operate the drive, even under load, much less idle. So it's a huge spike if you ask a machine to spin tons of drives up all at once versus if you stagger them, spin them up one at a time with a a slight interval in between them, then you only have to experience startup current on one drive at a time. So in, in this case, I really have to point at the failure to test backup and restore as the biggest issue that I see. Before I get into the things that I want to hold Reddit's feet to the fire for, I definitely want to say that I really, really appreciate the very detailed technical write-up they had of all the things that went wrong. We don't see a lot of that these days. I mean, it's the worst possible example, but when Twitter was down half a day, you know, we didn't hear crap about that. Uh, Whereas Reddit is like, okay, here are all the things. Here are like some screenshots of the metrics that we had while the outage was going on. Here's detailed analysis of why we stopped getting metrics and why this thing happened. Here is not only a thing that went wrong, here was our whole process and how we figured out that that thing had gone wrong. Love that. We need to see more of that in the world. I am far happier about that than I am upset about the things that they failed to do right. The biggest of which is, again, backup and restore. It's not something that you test once and you're done with. Like, you need to have a procedure and you need to routinely test that. Otherwise, you end up with situations like Reddit did where it's like, well, we did a test backup and restore a couple of million lines of code ago and we're hoping it will still work now. You shouldn't ever have to hope it will work when it's time to do a backup and restore and prod. It should just be another day at the office because you've practiced it so much. But isn't the problem here that this system is so complicated and complex that it's not really feasible to do that? It's absolutely feasible to do that because it's a cloud system based on Kubernetes. It scales. You can shut it down and start it back up or back it up and restore it onto a smaller scale. We've talked before about the pros and cons of the the big cloud services like AWS and Azure. And again, this is exactly the kind of thing that those services are fantastic for. You don't need those machines for long, so you rent some capacity and you restore your images onto that rented capacity, which again, does not need to be as large as production because you're not going to have millions of users connecting to it. You just need to see that, yes, I can actually restore the system. The data is there and it actually works. The biggest takeaway for me is is this third bullet saying, restoring from a backup is scary. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. 
especially for a service like Reddit, you get much stickier questions about the RTO and RPO. When they restore from a backup, does that mean that posts that happen just before the outage disappear and, you know, the upvotes get uncounted and so on? But that comes back to their backup strategy, right? If their backup strategy is, you know, we're going to restore to this point and then we're going to replay some logs of what happened on top of that in order to get back to that state and not lose a bunch of it. That's still part of the backup. You know, it's not necessarily the, the image-based backup itself, but that. And, you know, they talk about uh, a rollback a little bit, and it's like, it seems like if they had a different system for how they manage these upgrades, they'd be able to manage a rollback that would say rollback the software, but not the database. And, you know, they're upgrading their Kubernetes, not their database schema. So it's it should be something much more reversible. And they could have done without having to go back to uh, a backup. You're going to say it, aren't you, Alan? You're going to say ZFS. It doesn't have to be. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. I didn't say it. Alan hit the nail on the head. They said that, you know, backup and restore is scary. And if you think that the backup and restore is scary, then you've been doing it wrong. It shouldn't be scary because it's one of the things that you do all the time. You know exactly how it works. You know that it will work because you, know, you, you test the backups, you test your procedures, you know how to do it, which you never want to have to do. You don't want to be faced with the idea, I need to learn how to restore this system because it's broken. You do the learning part first when your failure to successfully restore doesn't mean downtime because you're literally just making sure you can do it. The whole saga just reeks of the the usual, and, and I mean, this is just, it's human nature. There is a very widespread failure to understand or to be willing to acknowledge the difference between high availability and disaster recovery. Kubernetes is a very highly available framework to build a system on. And I think there, there can probably come some hubris from working on a reasonably well-engineered Kubernetes-based system for several years, and you just think, oh, well, you know, it, it's immortal, right? Like, I don't really need to worry about it because it's, it's Kubernetes, it's distributed, and it's, yeah. But then eventually you come into a problem like this and you realize, oh, God, actually, it's more like I'm on the back of a tiger and I don't know how to get off. I found it very interesting that they upgraded Kubernetes, but there's no procedure to downgrade. There's just no way to do it. Yeah, it's it's a big case of BFYTW. <laughs> and that is one of the scarier things with systems like this. Um, major version upgrades to core components of a production system, yes, those are scary. Those are supposed to be scary. If you're not scared of something like upgrading Kubernetes from one point version to another on a production system probably shouldn't have your job because that is always going to be scary. The way that you defang the fear on that one is you don't do it for the first time in prod. Again, you have a parallel dev environment and it doesn't necessarily have to be scaled as high as the production environment. But before you ever get to the point of doing that upgrade in production, you should have done it thoroughly enough and often enough on backup systems that, again, it just feels like another day at the office by the time you do it. Yeah, and that dev environment is definitely something that should exist and the ideal place to, to solve some of these cold start problems so that when it happens, you can do something about it. Like, I really got an extra appreciation for that. Sometime in the winter, there was uh, an explosion in a telecom vault underneath the street outside of the data center we use, and all the fiber melted. 
So suddenly, a whole bunch of my critical infrastructure was offline. And luckily, we had procedures on our wiki that was hosted in more than one place and replicated so that it was still reachable, even though the primary data center was now isolated from the internet on how to switch all of our APIs to run off the backups and so on. Like a bunch of it fails over automatically, but some of it, like the mail doesn't switch over automatically because we don't want to have our clients trying to pull from the mailboxes on the backup if we're not failing over to it hard. But the fact that when that happened at three o'clock in the morning and I got woke up to go deal with it, I had procedures to follow and stuff and wasn't trying to remember how any of this worked at three o'clock in the morning. I just had a playbook. These are the things that need to happen. Check this. If it's not right, do this. If it's okay, then leave it alone. And just being able to follow that playbook and go back to bed. Yeah, it seems like it wasn't properly documented because if you read the story about how they all jumped on a call within three minutes and then some of them split off onto one call, some split off onto another, it seems like they were just flying by the seat of their pants and, and they were just winging it, right? They didn't have documentation of how to deal with this. There are different parts of it. You know, if part of it was, well, can we just get this Kubernetes upgrade to finish and be okay? That's one thing. Yeah, the backup, it seems they were deficient there. For some of the parts of the upgrade, it's like, it's the first time we're doing it, so of course we don't have documentation for it. But yeah, I think the backup, they really need to be practicing so that so often that it's routine, not scary. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Spend less time in the kitchen with quick and easy meals like fast and fresh pineapple chicken tacos or falafel power bowls ready in 15 minutes or less. No worries if you're not a pro in the kitchen. HelloFresh's foolproof recipes arrive pre-portioned and easy to prepare in just a few steps. HelloFresh isn't just for dinner. In fact, they have you covered for every mealtime occasion, from snacks and easy lunches to seasonal celebrations and festive gatherings. Jim tried HelloFresh and was really impressed with the minimal recyclable packaging and said the pepita-crusted salmon meal was restaurant quality. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 25admins50 and use the code 25admins50 for 50% off. Plus, your first box ships free. That's hellofresh.com slash 25admins50 and code 25admins50. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Ralph writes, I keep credentials in a plain text file that's encrypted using Ccrypt by Peter Selinger. To use credentials, I copy and paste them from an X term to the web browser. I save a backup of the encrypted file in a cloud VM. Everything's running FreeBSD. How safe is this strategy? I think the biggest threat to that strategy is you goofing something up and leaving the file decrypted or having the decrypted file end up get saved temporarily or accidentally and things like that. So I think you're your own biggest risk with something like that. Depending on your threat model, that might be slightly better or slightly worse than a password manager like Bitwarden and a couple others, which are basically doing the same thing, but have automated a little bit of it so that there's less manual faffing and and you know especially the way you're using secret do you want it to decrypt every password at once or do you only want it to decrypt the one you need each time and there can be some advantages to a manager for it but 
doing your own thing is more obscure, but I, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I would agree with Alan. The risk here is largely just that you'll screw something up because you're kind of cowboying and doing things your own way. A plain text file that's been encrypted, there, security-wise, there's not really any difference between that and a, quote, password vault, unquote. If anything, the plain text file is a little more robust because there's less to go wrong with it. Databases are a lot more fragile than plain text files are. So as long as you're the only person working in it, you don't have any you know, record locking concerns, the, the plain text file is a little more reliable. So as long as your algorithm is good for encryption and your key is strong, you're good to go. The concerns, again, are going to be if there is something wrong with the algorithm. I hope you're staying on top of all the cryptography news because you're going to have to know about it if a flaw gets discovered in the algorithm you've been using and you're going to have to respond to that and deal with it. Nobody else is going to do it for you. Yeah, I think the biggest concern there is when you decrypt the file, where is that output going? And are you sure it's definitely not getting stored, even temporarily? And the biggest problem with this is the usability is a little low. And does that mean that you like leave a decrypted version laying around for a little bit at a time to avoid entering the password over and over again or something? And kind of usability things that lead to propping the data center door open and then, oh, okay, now nobody needs a key card to get in. I don't know if Secrypt has a, a tool sort of analogous to, you know, Zcat. You can use Zcat to directly stream decrypt a gzipped file and, you know, put it directly on the terminal. If you're doing something along those lines and basically literally just barfing it to standard out and then copying and pasting from standard out, then you really shouldn't have any particularly concerns with, uh, you know, copies of the decrypted file lying around or whatever. Does that mean it'd be purely in RAM then, rather than actually being written to disk? Yeah, you'll, you're never writing anything to disk if you use a, a, a stream reading tool like that. Right. Now again, Zcat is for compression, not encryption, but there's not any difference in the mechanics of how such a tool works. If you've got a tool that will decrypt on the fly and just barf the decrypted output out to the terminal and then close, you don't ever need to write anything to a disk. Nothing is ever going to go to a disk. So yeah, it's just first in RAM and your graphics buffer, I guess, if you want to get really secret squirrel about it. The real question here, I think, is how are you updating the file? You want to add a new password to this thing. Where are you writing the plain text of the, the decrypted version plus your new thing? Where is that living until it's getting written back to the, the encrypted version on disk? And if that's ever on disk somewhere, then you have a chance that somebody could recover that. So this is the point where Alan actually gets the chance to say, but, 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 but ZFS, because, you know, one, one interesting way to nerf some of those problems would be rather than encrypting the file to store the file on a very small encrypted data set, which is only mounted when you need it. That would allow you to open the file, read or write without worrying about decrypted portions of it being littered around on your system elsewhere, because ZFS is handling that for you. You could just mount your data set, read or write the file as you needed to, and then unmount it again. And as long as the, you know, the key is something that you actually have to present at the time of mounting, then it solves all of your security issues and uh, you know, fixes a lot of the concerns about you know, ephemeral copies of the file maybe lying around somewhere strange. At that point, you could be concerned about like uh, you know, your text editor. Like, uh, are you using a text editor that automatically creates ephemeral files like, you know, under temp or something, and thereby getting them out of your encrypted area, that would be an issue. So you would just want to be careful of whatever editor you were using at that point. Yeah, you know, VI loves to throw a copy in like var temp, 
whatever dot mm-hmm. something. And, and uh, in case the machine crashes, you can get back your text file. It's like, yeah, except for that file has passwords in it, and I don't want anybody to get it back. Yeah, so you need to make sure that your text editor is going to create its uh, working files in the current working directory and not elsewhere if you're doing that. But once you do that, you're, you're pretty much gold. The only thing you have to worry about then is the copy-paste buffer. So the main drawback to anything like this, any kind of do-it-yourself, is that you're responsible for everything. So you have to watch for everything. Maybe it means you get to laugh when there's the next LastPass vulnerability or whatever, but there's a, a lot of things you have to think about, and it maybe is more than you really want to uh, have to worry about every time you're just trying to log into something. Ralph says that it keeps credentials in a plain text file. Does that mean that it's one big text file containing them all, or is it just one directory with one file per credential? Because maybe that would make more sense if you're not doing the ZFS encryption method there. That would mean that you're only encrypting one set of credentials at a time. That is a neat idea, and I like it. If you told me that I needed to make a bet, though, I would absolutely not bet that was what Ralph was doing. It sounds to me like Ralph was doing exactly what Ralph said Ralph was doing, which is keeping credentials in a plain text file. It's the old, the password Excel sheet, right? Except it's just a text file instead of a spreadsheet. Mm. And encrypted instead of not. And encrypted instead of not. The other nice thing about doing it Joe's way, where you had a separate file for each set of credentials, is you wouldn't need to edit it at all necessarily. Yeah, you just create something new. Yep, you could just echo and pipe it straight to the text file when you wanted to update it and done. (laughs) Yeah, although you wouldn't want to use echo necessarily because then it would go in your shell's history buffer. You'd want like Mm. cat dash and then redirect to file. No, just do a space before the command and it doesn't go in the bash history. Yeah, remember to do that every single time (laughs) versus having it prompt you uh, read standard in and then you just type password and press control D to say you're done. Or you just create a, a, a very, very small shell script that just asks for input and then dumps it into the file that you specified as an argument. And can take that input, feed it into ccrypt as standard input and have ccrypt write it to the file for you or whatever. Oh, that's even better, because at that point, you could, without much more work at all, you could set the script up actually even to manage all of the files. So you could just say, you know, my password script, some site.com, and then you type in your credentials to some site.com, and then it dumps it into a file tagged some site.com. And then you ask, the same script or a companion script, you know, give me the password for some site.com and it knows what file name to look for and barfs the contents out at you. Coming next week is the ZFS powered Passoid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we've just written a password manager in theory here. And at that point, just use Bitwarden or one of the existing ones. Well, what we're describing is still one hell of a lot simpler with less attack surface than something like a Bitwarden. I, I think there there actually is some viability to talking about wanting to do something like that. That's a relatively low effort to set up, relatively low effort to make sure that you're leveraging technologies that will get updated without you having to be on top of absolutely everything. And yet, you know, the part of it that makes it unique to you and is actually attackable is so simple that you can keep on top of it. I I think there's some value to that. Yeah. Although I've gotten quite used to having a browser plugin. Yeah, but that's not as much fun. Yeah. I think the other biggest risk with the one big text file version is when you're copying and pasting, you accidentally copy more of the buffer than you meant. And now you've just accidentally pasted four passwords instead of one. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback. 
You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. I'm on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.